0: Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. 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 This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun mm-hmm. on three occasions. I don't want to survive anyway.
1: Madame Deliridge, A union which allows fiscal to be broken for arms expenditure, but not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the To suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? They don't need us to kick them around the place. You could say, so what? It's a the police in riot gear we're trumped. I am ashamed to call myself a European. The recognition of country is an absolute embarrassment. Now you did use the word gobshite so uh, uh, I would rep- reprimand you over them. Okay, De Yves Galore. commied uh, <laughs> in Strasbourg. Uh, Arish. And actually on the 50th anniversary of Ireland joining the European Union or the EEC as it was at that time or even the EC, I'm not sure. But anyway, just myself and Mick. Damien is actually at a three-hour meeting discussing methane emissions. With Adrian with Adrian. <laughs> now, how sad is that? And you thought that our staff didn't have a lot of work to do, so discussing the details of methane. so he can't be with us, so we're, we're, we're home alone in what is a bit of a quiet week in some ways, wasn't it? Subdued, really, more than anything else. No, I don't know, we were still busy enough. Oh, we were uh, busy, yeah. yeah <laughs> um, um, obviously,
0: the um, the gathering for the Irish anniversary, um, it was interesting, um, with the um a few t- TDs came over, uh Joe McHugh, um Peter Burke and uh Brendan Howran from my own Wexford constituency. So and
1: Rory O'Murica who's a new guy in the show. Oh ship that's thing. right, and yeah, yeah. Nice, yeah. Nice fella. Um
0: yeah. so no it was great to have a chat with them and um mm. catch up on uh things at home
1: It was an interesting do and I mean we could devote a whole programme to the pros and cons of Ireland to join in the EU I mean I suppose our take on it would be that uh, we're incredibly pro-European actually and internationalist but the EU institutions themselves have left a lot to be desired and the disconnect between the people uh, and the institutions here is only growing really and a lot of the fixes that they're putting up, which we were discussing this week, like changes in how people can elect people to the European Parliament and issues like that are really just technical fixes for what are bigger problems.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's changed a lot in the 50, in the 50 years um, it's a very different uh, institution or entity uh, to the one that we initially initially joined. Now, listen: if you were to do a survey at home, a vast majority of people, I'd say at least ninety percent of the people of Ireland would say, "Yeah, yeah," um, being in the European Union is a good idea. Uh, but it's probably got got more to do with the fact that the Irish um, were always fond of Europe anyway. They like to go there on the holidays if they if those they could afford it and. Um, we have a sort of a good feeling about Europe. Um, but obviously we've argued over and over many times that the Nice Treaty and the Lisbon Treaty were g- game changers um, in terms of how the place was run. And we would argue that neoliberalism was enshrined in the in, constitutions of of, the, of this place um, with those two treaties in particular. And um, unfortunately, we feel that... Um, there's a lot of room for uh, to making things better. Um, it probably takes better care of the interests of big business at the moment than it does of the ordinary citizens of Europe. And uh, while we are very keen on the European project, uh, we'd like it to be better than what it is.
1: Absolutely. And while there's a, a lot of calls at the moment for transparency and all that kind of stuff flowing, particularly from Cattergate and the bribing with big bags of cash, of a number of MEPs, the truth is far more insidious and that the real players know you don't have to give big bags of cash. You just have to have the ear to the right people, put the the word in it and uh, get your policies drafted as part of, of policies of the institutions themselves. So it was always so. But come here, this week anyway, we had sadly... A year on of the war in Ukraine. Uh, also the devastation of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Absolutely, which we spoke about last week. Catastrophic. Uh, dealing briefly with the EU's response on that. We had uh, our one-minute speeches, which we both actually did the same thing on. For the first time ever. For the first time ever, but that was because the issue was important. So let's lead on that one. What did we do it on?
0: Nord Stream attack. Um I'm sure people. I'll, not everybody will probably be aware of it because the mainstream media have refused yeah. to cover it in general. Um, not don't can't say for certain that the main papers or RT at home covered or not. I, I can't be sure, but generally speaking across Europe, there's been very little coverage of it. But the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, reporter Seymour Hirsch, probably one of the most esteemed journalists alive, um, he published a, a very extensive report. Uh, revealing that uh, Nord Stream uh, pipeline uh, was attacked by the US with the help of uh, Norway. I mean, this is uh, an an incredible revelation and he went into great detail. Uh, He's obviously got uh, very good sources, uh, but people don't want to know. Uh, Now, we've pointed out before that um, when the attack on Nord Stream happened, there was ructions in the parliament here and people said, oh, the Russians, the Russians, and they blamed the Russians for blowing up their own pipe. Well, it was also partly owned by Germany, because Germany had put a lot of money into it too, and the Dutch put some money into Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, but the Russians were, the, it was considered a Russian pipe, and most of it was paid for by the Russians, but so they, the MEPs were accusing Russia of attacking it, as were the mainstream media. But they went very quiet, very quickly, and within a couple of days, there wasn't a word to be said about it. It was, it was like I say, hold on, lads, better not say anything about that. And um, so uh, we've seen no appetite from the European Union, despite um, um, von der Leyen state, stating that, she, oh, this was huge. Right? In actual fact, I'll, I'll tell you what she said back in September. She said that it was paramount to now investigate the Nord Stream attacks and that any deliberate disruption of active European energy is unacceptable and will lead to the strongest possible response. Well, sadly, there's been no... There's been no response and there's been no proper investigation. They don't seem to want to know the truth. But now we have this powerful reporter, Seymour Hersh, uh, revealing that it was actually the Americans planned it all and they got some help uh, from the Norwegians. I mean, this is shocking stuff.
1: It's, It's a huge story. And actually von der Leyen's comment is accurate because this was an act of war an attack on a critical piece of European infrastructure, which this award-winning, the most inspiring investigative journalist alive has said boldly and without qualification that this was done by our supposed, Germany's supposed ally, the United States. Now this isn't a fellow who goes around bandying claims lightly and as you said, make the level of detail in his claims are quite immense. Like basically the North Stream 2 pipes, people will know it was North Stream 1 and North Stream 2. North Stream 1 was the pipe that's been supplying Germany with cheap gas for over a decade and Germany even been able to sell on the surplus and do very well economically uh, out of that. Uh, North Stream 2 was ready to be opened uh, around the time the war. Now, there's a couple of very interesting things in Hirsch's article. The first one being that the Americans' plan to take out the these pieces of European in- infrastructure was set in train before Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. It was carried out at top level under the strict blessing of Biden himself that US Navy trained Panama divers planted explosives on the pipes, which were subsequently triggered by a sonar buoy dropped by the Norwegian Navy. Now, this is the biggest scandal in the history of European infrastructure in, in modern times. And nobody said a word now as... We were saying, like, you know, the, that the Washington Post and the New York Times wouldn't say anything you can kind of understand because this is pretty embarrassing for the Americans. But how much more embarrassing for the Europeans whose infrastructure... I mean, imagine if your neighbour or your best friend set fire to your house, pauperizing yourself and your wife and children, and you kind of stayed friends with him and didn't want to know why he did it or if he did it or anything. For God's sake, this is crazy stuff.
0: Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And... Uh we were mentioning that Damien and, and uh, Adrian are at a three-hour methane meeting this morning. Uh, people should be reminded that uh, when the North Stream uh, attack happened, it was the biggest recorded release of methane in the history of mankind. It was environmental terrorism. And now it looks like the Americans planned it. But the Europeans don't want to know. And when I was speaking on it on Monday night, I asked the commission, I said, do you want to know? And did you ask the Americans? Did they did it? Did they do it? Mm. Or are you afraid to ask them? Mm. Or do you know anyway? Mm. I mean, why don't you just come clean? No.
1: This is the thing. I mean, we don't know what happened. We're not claiming to know what happened. But what we're saying is, a very credible person has given very detailed evidence. So it behoves those in power and those who own this infrastructure, in the name of the German people, in particular to find out whether it's true or not and investigate. And the very fact that they aren't. I mean, if the Russians wanted to blow up their own, you know, wanted to turn off the gas, they could have just turned it off. And I mean, they might talk about Putin being mad, but I mean, I don't think he's stupid, like blowing up his own pipe, like and then having to pay to fix It's a little bit on the absolutely do doolally side, like.
0: And they have actually been exploring uh, the prospect of fixing it, uh, which seemingly is going to cost about £1.5 uh, to fix it, but the Russians obviously uh want to fix the pipe. Uh but so uh the idea that the it as well uh is a bit of a stretch. Yeah. yeah. Um it's really just horrific.
1: I um, think it does make an interesting link to on your speech. We are of course here approaching the first anniversary of the Ukraine war, which is absolutely horrific to think of that of the thousands of civilians dead, the tens of thousands of soldiers, the cities destroyed destruction and yet all of the talk in the European Parliament was basically to keep the show on the road (coughs) uh, to keep it going. Uh, You were the shadow Mick on the resolution. We put forward a resolution on behalf of the left group but unfortunately, uh, its content became totally debased in the group discussions and there's no way we could support the resolution that was finally tabled before the Parliament because it was so extreme, the usual um, efforts to keep the war going rather than striving for a peace and a way out. And I thought your contribution was very good and that you highlighted the point about Germany and what has become of it. Yes, yeah, maybe we might just play it. It's only a minute long.
0: Thank you very much, President. Only last September, Commission President von der Leyen stated that it was paramount to now investigate the Nord Stream pipeline attack and that any deliberate disruption of active European energy is unacceptable and will lead to the strongest possible response. The strongest possible response. Well, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Seymour Hirsch, probably the most legendary investigative journalist alive, just published a report that presents detailed claims that on President Biden's orders, the US, with Norway's help, blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. Hirsch has a long track record of journalistic integrity. This was a premeditated terrorist attack on European critical infrastructure. It was also environmental terrorism. Does the EU care? Do you need to know who did it or do you want to know? Hirsch says the US did it. Did you just ask him? Did you just ask him to do it? Or, or he's asked them questions anymore. Have we become so subservient? Has the EU become so subservient to US empire? They just can't even ask him if they did it. Is it really a fucking joke? Yeah. Uh, no, just you were talking about uh, the meeting. Just to explain to people, right? Um, I was the shadow on the resolution um, on, on Ukraine uh, the one year of the war uh, for the left group. So w- we actually came up uh, with a resolution. Um, th- listen, there wasn't agreement across the board because there isn't in GUI anyway, because we're, uh, we're kind of a, a mixed group and uh, we're not just, a pa- we're not a political uh, group. We're not a political party and um, opinions diverge plenty uh, in the group. But anyway, Uh, there was a lot of compromising done. A a resolution was produced at the end. But then, so what happens then is, uh, we're one of the seven groups. So all the other groups then, they do a resolution as well. And then the seven of them are piled together. And the people, uh, the the rapporteur uh, for the the, the file, uh, he pulls all the seven resolutions together and he comes up with compromises. And then we go into a room and we debate them. So we had a two-hour meeting, uh, with the the shadows for EPP, uh, Renew, S and D, you know the Greens, whatever the whole lot, right? And um, so we literally sat around the table for two hours and argued about uh, all of the stuff, right? I mean, look, um, I was I was actually thinking it'd be good to have had a video of it, right, uh, and a recording to give people an idea. Uh, where these people are in their heads and how pro-war they are mm. and it doesn't seem to matter how many Ukrainians are going to die uh, we had a big debate they said that the EU's this is only one of the many things there was 26 uh, main main sections in this uh, uh, compromise amendments, right? There was twenty-six, and we we went through every one of them, right? But one of the ones we did was they were saying that the EU's uh, primary position now is for uh, Ukraine to win the war, and I said, hold on a minute, should we not? Should our position not be to stop the war and to bring about peace? It, should not that be our primary position? Oh no, 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 no. We must win the war, mm. and I said, but there's nobody going to win the war. There'll be no winner in this war, Mm -hmm. only losers, right? And how many Ukrainians are you going to let die in your effort to win a war that you can't win? Mm -hmm. Because there's no win in this war. So it's very hard to win any war anymore, right? And there'll be no winner in this one either. But it doesn't seem to matter to them how many Ukrainians die. Now, the number of citizens that that have been killed in the year of the war is actually much lower than normal according to the UN figures and according to the Ukrainian figures, it's still less than 10,000, right? When you think that there was a million citizens killed in Iraq, right? But there's an awful lot of soldiers dead, I would say, on both sides. And it's reported that there's at least 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers dead. And these are not rich people. These are not the middle class. These are poor, underprivileged Ukrainians, and they are being fed into an absolute carnage. It, it, it is unthinkable what's happening, and yet we're prepared to pump more and more arms into Ukraine to stop this war from ending. It's a never-ending war now, and we're saying that the reason we're doing it is because Ukraine has to win. Mm. But this is Tulali. Mm. This is madness.
1: It's very, and it is interesting how the shift in the narrative has very much gone from Ukraine has the right to defend itself that Ukraine must win. Uh, Ukraine must defeat Russia. And, uh, you know, people would say, when we say Ukraine can't win, they say, oh, that's just because you're pro-Russian and you're pro-Putin, which is utter nonsense, you know. That isn't why. It's because we realise, as most military strategists and anyone really who's honest knows that, as you say, Mick, nobody will win the war. And the sad thing is, I mean, be ironic for us to quote a, an Israeli prime minister, but here we go. <laughs> uh, life is strange these days. But the former prime minister of Israel, uh, Bennett, came out there and said he was privy to trying to get the two sides together back uh, in the early days, in the early months of the war and had an agreement between Russia and Ukraine where Russia would withdraw on the basis of Ukraine um, giving a pledge and an undertaking not to uh, join NATO. Here we are months later with all the deaths, all the destruction, six cities levelled four provinces now illegally annexed by russia since then and over a billion in in our billions and billions of money gone in which ordinary ukrainians are going to be paying back forever and they call that ukraine winning like It's just disgusting. It's a churning, it's a meat machine for the defence industry and the people in here shouting and roaring and all wearing their yellow and and, um, blue suits and flags and scarves. It's just disgusting. But I suppose on the positive note, what we do see now around Europe is the people of Europe beginning to get off their feet and saying enough. And there will be rallies and events taking place all over the continent this weekend saying peace, not war, not our war. Get around that table. Uh, And that's the way forward. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh,
0: at least it's starting to dawn on the public that the longer the war goes on, uh, the more Ukraine will be destroyed and the more innocent Ukrainians will die and the more Ukrainians will be displaced what will the country be like by the time they get to a place where they think they're winning? I mean, it's unthinkable. And as you said, the mood is changing a bit. And as you might have picked up on on, on my short speech there, I pointed out that Germany, uh, which was one of the most impressive countries in the world in terms of how it was organised and run, a really powerful country in many ways. And Schultz, uh, the new chancellor, who, re- who replaced Merkel, uh, came out uh, early on and said there'll be no peace in Europe without Russia, which was a strong statement. Uh, then the war started, and uh, after a much debate, the, Euro- the Germans didn't want to get involved in the war. Uh, memory of the Second World War hasn't gone away, and they sent helmets to uh, the Ukrainians, Um, as a gesture of support. And they were ridiculed a bit by it, by some. uh, But as I pointed out, now they're sending tanks to kill Russians. What has happened to Germany? This is madness.
1: And then there was the reports as well of um, them, basically the contractors and the people, the Germans, training Ukrainian soldiers to warn them not to have Nazi memorabilia uh, on their uniforms oh when they're training them. Like, Who would have thought it that Germany would be training people <laughs> who are supporters? of And that's not to say, we're not saying every Ukrainian is a fascist or anything like that, but everybody knows that the Azov Battalion and neo-Nazi forces are prominent and have an influence beyond their size in the Ukrainian and, military. Uh, and the,
0: the mainstream media gave plenty of coverage to that before the war, mm-hmm. but now uh, it's silence. And you're not allowed to say now that there's any Nazi element involved in Ukraine. Mm. But in uh, in yesterday's debate, um, I was jeered a lot during my debate. Uh, I'm not allowed to have an opinion. Mm. Uh, there's a huge effort uh, to close down the dissenting vice. Uh, but it was interesting that uh, when when uh, Joseph Burrell, the high representative, uh, was re- replying... Uh, to all the speeches uh, he spent 7 or 8 minutes uh, addressing the points I was making mm. he obviously doesn't agree with me but uh, in fairness to him uh, he did address them and uh, uh, I thought it, it, was, uh, you know, it, it was it's his job and fair play to him he didn't just ignore it you know mm. what I was saying and he argued back and he made his case I don't agree with him uh, but uh, we're both entitled to our opinion
1: And yeah, you're right, and I think one of the reasons why he did respond to you is that he understands that the views you're putting forward of the need to end this war are becoming much more popular now in Europe, despite the mainstream media trying to dampen down and prevent discussion in that way. So I think uh, we definitely notice uh, a change. So on that basis, we'd encourage people to join the anniversary um, anti-war protests that are taking place.
0: And just to finish on it, uh, as part, of, I mean, I haven't time to go through of all Burrell's response. It was really long. Uh, he spoke for about 15 minutes. Uh, and uh, But he said that, um, I was fortunate enough, he says, to meet leaders in Latin America, Southeast Asia, Africa, and many have swallowed the propaganda, the Russian propaganda and the disinformation that says that increased food prices and energy prices are because of our sanctions. And we have to explain this is not the case to them, right? And he it was pointing out that I mean, he obviously, he's done a bit of a world tour he has, trying to sell the war, right? Mm. But over two-thirds of the world's population uh, is saying no to it. Uh, they're not supporting the war. They're staying neutral. They're not supporting the Russians either. And staying neutral and looking for peace is not doesn't mean you're supporting Russia. Mm. But the EU has tried, and the mainstream media in particular, like, I mean, we've been called uh, Putin puppets because we want peace. Now, I mean, uh, where the rationale comes from is beyond me. But, I mean, uh, Burrell was at pains to point out that they have a challenge Mm. to make everyone think like them.
1: Well, it is interesting that he categorises like probably two-thirds, three-quarters of the world's population as being the victims of Russian disinformation. And it didn't dawn on him that maybe he's the one who's misinformed and on the wrong page of history, but in any case. Right, come here, we had a number of other issues that sort of made the headlines. One of the biggest and longest debates, I suppose, that took place over the couple of days was trying to elevate the issue of women's rights, Uh, gender-based violence, particularly the issue of the Istanbul Convention. Now, people may or may not know when this issue gets uh, mentioned here, it is the focal point for a bit of toxicity. So this becomes a big controversial issue in the Parliament whenever it gets debated. Now, the Istanbul Convention, for people who don't know, was a treaty convention put in place uh, many years ago in relation to dealing with the conditions and preventing and eliminating violence against women. So, presumably, you'd be thinking now that everybody, no matter what their political view is, is against violence against women. But unfortunately, the issue has been hijacked a bit uh, in some areas and attempts made to say it's about all sorts of other stuff, LGBT rights, uh, trans rights, all this kind of thing. And the issue of gender has become quite controversial, particularly in a whole number of EU, Eastern Europe, former Eastern Europe European member states, such that six of the EU member states have not ratified the convention. And this becomes a big heated debate here with the sort of liberal um, sets uh, from old Europe, as it were, shouting and roaring at Poland and Hungary and these others calling them throwbacks, the others kind of saying you're eliminating our family values and all this kind of thing. Um, I suppose there's two interesting takes from that. One is that we've presented this issue as a sort of a progressive Western Europe versus throwback renegades in Eastern Europe. But in actual fact, what we should be saying is why have these debates become so entrenched? Have we lost the ability to negotiate, explain, and bring people of opposing views together? Clearly, we have, that we're taking these entrenched positions. I think the other interesting angle that the media don't pick up on is well, when you sign the Istanbul Convention, so what? Because Ireland signed it years ago, and the position facing women in its escape and violence is worse than it ever was. Nine counties don't have refuges. Two out of three callers to women's aid don't have accommodation. And the key reason why women are in violent uh, relationships is our housing crisis and their lack of income supports. Is They've nowhere else to go, so they're trapped in this. And we have politicians from the government parties out here, you know, berating the Eastern Europeans and going on about we must have the Istanbul Convention. And they're standing over a government at home that has a record housing crisis that is actually entrapping women in continuing violent relations while pretending that just signing this convention is a panacea when the document before us was about the EU signing up collectively over the heads of these six countries, if you like, which can be done. Um, You could say, is that a good way of proceeding? Maybe, maybe not. But the real thing is, well, it would be good to sign, but my God, it'd be much better to put in measures that we're actually dealing with violence against women rather than grandstanding.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you tie it all together very well and you just show how all this is connected and... uh When you say it like that, it it just makes so much sense. Uh, We have huge challenges. And uh, it would be good if the mainstream media actually went to the space and actually pointed out uh, the problems that we have and uh, not to be just looking at the surface of it.
1: Well, isn't it? It's another example of how they don't join the dots or cover anything here because it's just, oh, great progressive EU. Uh, and that's not the story at all but come here another issue that would be interesting at home as well that they didn't cover either was this whole emissions debate that you were to the forefront of
0: Yeah I was speaking on the. the <coughs> there's a big debate going on in the parliament about reducing emissions from cars I don't know if people realise it or not right but there there's plans to phase out uh, petrol and diesel engines I'm Sure they don't right? <laughs> and uh, by 2035 you won't be able to buy a diesel or petrol car or van after 2035 mm. so how is this going to come about well um, first of all there's been a, a huge debate uh, over a mo- several months now over nearly a year I'd say uh, in the parliament about how we get to reduce emissions and eventually an agreement came out of the Environment Committee and out of the parliament and then it went into Trilog and while uh, uh, Jan the Dutch guy who was, who was actually he was pretty good on it he was the rapporteur for it uh, He's on the Environment Committee, and he was looking for seventy percent emission reduction uh, for new cars by twenty thirty, and then a hundred percent by twenty thirty five. But he didn't get it. What when, when? What happened after the trialogue was that it came out with fifty. There's a target now of a fifty five percent emission reduction for new cars, and a fifty percent reduction for new vans by twenty thirty. That's compared to twenty twenty one levels, right? Now, um, obviously, this is a huge issue, right? And and obviously, someone said to me, "What's going to happen?" Uh, uh, Okay, so electric cars will be allowed, and they'll be expensive. So you tell me, only the rich will be allowed to drive cars? And I said, "Well, no." And I actually said it in my debate uh, that uh, cars are not the future of transport. Better public transport and active travel have to be the future, and all the member states across Europe have to work in that direction. But at the same time, there's going to have to be targeted support wherever necessary for electric vehicles, in particular in rural areas. Right? We can't if we have rural areas and we don't have the public transport, uh, and p- people do need cars in rural areas an awful lot of the time. Right? Well, and if 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 they're going to be expensive governments are going to have to actually help people to get them. They're literally going to have to come up with the money because if you want to cut the emissions in cars, and there's over 2 billion cars worldwide, and there's there's a huge uh, level of emissions from the cars, and it'll be great if we get to this space. But we've got to do it right. We've got to do it in such a way that the less well-off are not uh, penalised by it uh, and that but it just be, that owning cars becomes just uh, uh, something that, that the rich can afford. That's something that we really have to work on. But I mean, look, there's an awful lot of work in it, and uh, but it's it's the way to go, whether we like it or not. Um, if we're concerned about the environment, car emissions have to be tackled.
1: Yeah, It's a a huge subject and anybody who knows me knows I love cars and always have, but actually I haven't had a car now for a few years and that's not because I'm a great green. My car packed in on Christmas Eve a few years ago and I haven't replaced it and I've had the fortune of not having to replace it because we're living in Brussels and it has a very good public transport system and I don't need it. And what Brussels has then is for people who occasionally need to travel outside, they can rent a car. So there are group cars that like the scooters or like the bikes that you pick up in Dublin, uh, you can pick up a car like that in Brussels. And I think some schemes like that for rural areas going forward are important. But I mean, I think as well, you were saying about, you know, electric cars and that is true, but that brings in the quest for raw materials. And that was a topic that we spoke on as well about them going out, basically pillaging, looking for lithium <coughs> and all these things and the consequences that that's going to have on the global south.
0: Yeah, no, the, we, we, actually, we were actually talking about that in the debate as well. And we were just saying that uh, this transition uh, is going to require an explosive uh, and probably an, an unsustainable increase in resource extraction. And that's a huge challenge. And this is going to have to be got right. Uh, you, you, we cannot fix one element of the environmental challenge uh, by damaging another end of it. Right? Mm. Now, I, I know we touched on it last week, right? Uh, but it should not go off the Richter scale. scale. It shouldn't be going off the front page. But the failure to get sufficient support to Turkey and Syria uh, is really depressing Mm. and Syria in particular where the the, the sanctions that the US and EU have on Syria are preventing aid from getting in to save lives Mm. I mean people should be really upset about this Uh, people should be clamoring that something is done about this the sanctions have to be lifted more support has to go to Turkey and Syria we're, we're after pumping 150 billion into a war in Ukraine to keep it going and we can we are only been able to find pittance uh, to help so many, over 40,000 are dead now, there's millions displaced, it's, it's, it's a horror scene and we've only been f- able to come up with pittance to help them, it's really not good enough.
1: And there's no coverage, it's gone off the front pages now, even though the amount of civilian casualties is way, way, way way more and the destruction in many ways you could argue is you know at least as severe as what's happening in the war uh, if not worse in some parts in a a concentrated way Um, my god they're not talking about it and they were even blaming the Syrians themselves nearly nearly which is everybody knows in international law and international humanitarian aid should never be politicized. And, you know, even during the earthquakes in Iran before they were able to lift the sanctions and deal with the Iranian government to get help in. And they're dragging their feet on this one. And a number of UN special rapporteurs basically were begging for the sanctions to be lifted. And in fact, a number of aid agencies as well. You've got to work with the go. It's not enough to think that NGOs or the Red Cross are going to be able to deal with the scale of the crisis. And it should be said that the warnings from the UN prior to the earthquake about the living conditions in Syria have to be factored in, where 70% of the population were reliant on humanitarian aid after 10 years of war and then the sanctions actually on the ground, the conditions are worse than they were during the war years. People were only, this is before the earthquake now, getting an hour's electricity. Yeah. Huge problems with water, huge problems with infrastructure. You can't deal with an earthquake if that's the level of infrastructure behind the scenes and the sanctions caused that.
0: Well, I mean, you mentioned the fact that uh, the humanitarian aid has been politicised and... One of the first times we've probably seen that uh, was with Afghanistan, which we mentioned last week. But I mean, this we weren't this bad before. No. We were better at coming up and helping people in crisis. Uh, there was more support uh, for people worldwide from the international community, especially from the countries that could afford it, to help people in a dire situation. Mm. And... It is, it is really disappointing that we're going backwards and mm. that we're allowing people to die for, uh, because we're politicising the situation uh, at the moment. It's yeah, no, it, horrific.
1: Yeah, horrific. it's a sad example of the breakdown in multilateralism. So, without wanting to end it on that sad note, uh, I think we should. Um, will go in and fight a few the remaining battles left here.